Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Monday, July 26th, 2021. And we have got a great episode for you coming up today. We're going to kick things off with a fascinating conversation about the dynamics that go on in restaurants that you may never have observed or even thought about. But there is a UNM sociologist professor. His name is Eli Ravel Yano Wilson, who has done a lot of research on this and has a new book out that is called Front of the House, Back of the House. We'll have a link for you on that in the show description. But he really spent a lot of time looking at how the front of the house and who works in the front of the house and what the demographic makeup of those people are as compared to the back of the house. And again, probably not something you've ever considered, but it is a fascinating conversation and something worth considering, especially as we know, restaurants are struggling with their workforce coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. We were only able to bring you a part of this conversation on the show this week on air on New Mexico PBS. We're going to bring it to you in full here. So here now, correspondent Gwyneth Doland. Eli Ravel, Yano Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you as well, Gwyneth. It's, a, it's an honor to, to be here at, um, in the studio. So in your book, Front of the House, Back of the House, you say restaurants are places of social segregation. They are inequality regimes. How do restaurants breed inequality? I know. And, you know, I'm glad we're starting there, Gwyneth, because I think a a lot of people who go out to eat, uh, restaurants are a tremendous source of pleasure. They're places of entertainment, of leisure, and, uh, you know, all of these kind of feel-good, wonderful, uh, wonderful reasons why we, why we patronize restaurants. Um, my job, though, as a sociologist, and in particular a type of sociologist uh, known as an ethnographer, is to go in deeper, go behind the scenes, and really examine and be critical uh, in doing so, in thinking about what are, what are we seeing going on, um, you know, when you look underneath the hood, so to speak, of restaurants, you, you sort of literally enter, literally and figuratively entering into the back of house spaces um, that are far less visible um, uh, to customers. So in my book, really what I'm exploring is it's uh, immediately um, evident to anyone who works in restaurants or is able to step foot in those behind the scenes spaces that, um, as I like to say, uh, people who look different, sound different, have different social attributes, uh, work in very different capacities in restaurants, particularly on the, on the higher end of the spectrum. So in other words, not fast food, but your typical maybe sit down restaurant, you know, maybe like a Friday night a date spot, so to speak, uh, those types of environments. And so I was interested in exploring why do we see this tremendous divides, these divides of race and of social class and also of gender and other types of social statuses. And that became uh, sort of the puzzle that became the, uh, the, the source of, of, my, of driving my, my investigation. So what do these divides look at in terms of race and class? Who, who is where for those of us who are not paying attention? Excellent. Yeah. Um, so to, to be to be very um, brief about this in the in the front of the house, that is the spaces, the public spaces of restaurants, hosts, servers, bartenders. These tend to be individuals who um, are lighter in skin, oftentimes racially white. Uh, they are younger. They tend to be both men and women, but sometimes predominantly female. 
Uh, and in these settings, uh, they also be uh, tend to be settings um, where those individuals um, tend to have greater levels of education as well. Uh, and we'll get into in just a little bit why that is the case. Uh, now, in the back of the house, you see uh, people with, again, very different social attributes. Um, these tend to be in a place like New Mexico or in Los Angeles, which was uh, home base for my study. These tend to be individuals that are predominantly uh, foreign born or maybe the children of foreign born immigrants. Uh, and they tend to be disproportionately Latinx, uh, in this case, primarily Latino men. So again, very different patterns that we see behind the scenes in terms of who does what type of job uh, within restaurants and other types of service environments as well. It's not just restaurants. Yeah, so it's the, service is the key here. We're not talking about mom and pop places where there's really no distinction between the people making the taco and passing the taco across the counter. It's the tipping system that defines this Inequality, is that it? Uh, in large part. So um, just to clarify what, what you said, which, is, which I think is spot on, uh, the kind of environments that I was looking at are not, um, as you say, mom and pop restaurants. I would also go as far as to say um, kind of casual or fast food environments. Uh, these are settings where um, there's actually been a lot of literature, uh, both by journalists and academics, looking at these settings as low wage, uh, low wage labor settings uh, places where they have been widely criticized as um, kind of uh, exploitative of, of workers in terms of uh, labor hours and precarious work conditions, as well as low wages. Uh, so that's uh, one very important aspect of the restaurant industry. And I can, of course, say a little bit more about that. But this, what, what I was interested in was settings in which hospitality, uh, that sort of service you receive from uh, workers, um, different kinds of workers too, where, where hospitality it plays a center role in what it means to labor in that environment. Uh, and those are settings uh, where tipping becomes a key dimension of both the kind of money uh, that workers make, but also it gets fused into all kinds of different relationships uh, that go on behind the scenes, not just between paying, uh, tipping customers and the workers that receive that earning, but also what happens after that, right? So what, what, where do the tips go? Who do they flow to? Who do they not flow to? In what quantity? What role does management play? There's a whole set of um, really important questions behind the scenes, uh, sort of after the diner has already left, you know, that, that marking on a credit card slip or left uh, some dollars and, and maybe cents um, on, on top of the bill. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who own restaurants or have owned restaurants or worked in them who are just horrified by the idea that they are part of this institution that enforces a racist, unequal system. Um, is this an intentional thing or are people aware of it, people in management? That's a great question. And, you know, I, I think that there's a simple answer and probably a more complicated one. I'm going to take the latter route here since, um, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with, a, I'm, I think, an educated, informed audience uh, here today. So the more complicated answer is it's really some of both. Um, I think in many ways, as I put it in my book, uh, what we're dealing with here is business as usual forms of social inequality. And what I mean by that is social inequality that is not the, the product of you know, overtly uh, racist or sexist or, or sort of evil actors. Um, to me, uh, that story, although still maybe present in pockets, every now and then we have, we have some expose story that comes out. I think you and I have both 
uh, have both heard something of that nature. Uh, but that was less of interest to me. Um, frankly, many of the managers and supervisors that I interacted with over the course of doing my field work were wonderful, loving, caring human beings uh, that wanted the best for uh, not just themselves, but for their staff and, of course, for their guests. So um, that was not the case. That was not what was the primary uh, sort of point of interest for me. I was far more interested in and this phenomenon that in sociology we, has become um, a, a tremendously fruitful line of research, which is the way in which social inequalities get reproduced uh, without any of us knowing, with all of us just kind of going about our daily business in the way that we best see fit. Uh, and that becomes a far more interesting and I would say insidious way uh, that today here in 2021, we see these social inequalities get reproduced. That is super interesting. So, you know, if, if people want to change this sort of system that they're a part of without even really realizing, what, what do they need to do? Is it like just get rid of the tipping system, everybody gets a living wage and call it good? <laughs> Wouldn't it be so easy? <laughs> um, well, let me, let me back up a, a half step uh, before fully answering that question, which is to, to kind of unpack a little bit about what, what I found, my argument as to how indeed social inequality gets reproduced and reproduced within restaurants. Uh, and I argue in my book, um, based on extensive field research, that it's both the product of distinct uh, managerial choices, choices about hiring, choices about supervisory practices, uh, that again, are not so overtly uh, sexist or racist, uh, but are looking for certain qualities in a worker, say, uh, in the front of the house, versus those in the back of house. Uh, and, and as a function of screening uh, people that come in for a, a, a job application um, in these subtle ways, for instance, most prominently in the front of house, uh, managers looking for individuals who carry themselves well, right? A manager may say something like, uh, that, person, that person sounds good or just feels like they would be a good fit in this um, kind of upscale setting of hospitality, or my customers are really gonna enjoy talking to that person. Now we can sort of think about a little bit of what's being coded, uh, what kind of attributes are being coded in when we get that kind of comment. Um, you know, in, in my view, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit about race, those who are lighter skinned, uh, maybe quote unquote present better. Uh, it's also a class component, right? Speaking well right? Articulating words, using certain word choices. Imagine describing a filet mignon. They speak well because they're grad students, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, ab absolutely. Uh, so, you know, all of these subtle ways in which the way we look, the way we sound becomes, um, are, are not directly, uh, uh, the management does not understand them as codes for race, uh, but maybe more subtly, uh, if they really examine who best fits that type of role, we see these screens of race and class and um, also of gender here playing out and sorting people into these unequal types of jobs. Uh, so that's management's role. I would also add briefly that uh, I, I argue in my book, it's not just management uh, that enacts the social inequality. Coworkers play a very key role here. What I argue in my book um, in very subtle ways is that as a function of people with different social attributes being screened into these structurally different jobs within restaurants. Imagine working deep in the kitchen, washing dishes in a hot environment, noisy environment, 
or working up in the dining room uh, amongst uh, colleagues who uh, maybe as a function of what I just said, um, sort of look like you and sound like you. You, you kind of uh, have similar uh, sort of interests. Um, as a function of that, uh, workers themselves start to understand themselves as different from one another. Uh, they start enacting uh, social and symbolic boundaries against one another. As in, uh, this is who, quote unquote, we are, say, as servers and bartenders. Here's how we act. This is why we deserve these jobs. And this is who they are. I'm pointing over there. And over there, of course, would be in the kitchen. Um, Latino immigrants maybe speaking, uh, speaking in Spanish, obviously um, maybe looking uh, differently, at least the way that workers themselves understand these differences. Uh, and so workers enact their own kind of boundaries that make it very difficult for say a uh, Latino or Latina immigrant to make uh, the crossover and work in a highly tipped bartending uh, role, customer facing bartender role. So workers play a role there too, as well as customers, which uh, I can go into later. So, so all of that is a, go ahead. <laughs> are you saying that managers need to be aware of this and, and change their hiring practices? It, what, what, how does that look? I mean, all of a sudden you want to, you want them to hire people who don't look like them, don't feel like them? I mean, is that it? No, that, that's a really uh, great observation. So uh, once again, going back to what I said earlier, managers are just doing what makes sense to them. Um, of course, we need to understand that there are um, sometimes problematic implications of the way management uses some of these screening um, you know, devices. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but uh, to, to get at your point, you know, what can management do? Um, I'm a big advocate uh, going to, uh, you know, more practical steps of sort of what can we do about all this. I'm a big advocate of creating job ladders for employees, uh, breaking down what is previously understood as just that person either has it or they don't. They either are friendly or customers like them or they don't. Breaking that down into specific skills, training and providing uh, resources for workers to gain those skills. And ultimately, if they do gain those skills, uh, allowing them to move up in the hierarchy, allowing them more positions of responsibility. Uh, in other words, uh, again, breaking down some of these socially coded uh, differences and hierarchies within restaurants and actually creating bridges uh, into better, better quality jobs. Look, restaurants have had a hard time during the pandemic. A lot of them went completely broke, had to close. Mm -hmm. This sounds like a lot of work. What's in it for restaurants to actively make all these changes? Well, th yeah, that's a that's a wonderful point. This has been an absolutely brutal year. Um, I've I've written on this. I've talked to some of my old uh, colleagues in restaurants, and um, everyone was suffering. Both management, workers, uh, everyone involved, as um, I'm sure you're well aware. So, uh, so this question of like, well, isn't this just too much work? Isn't you know, can can restaurant uh, restaurant owners as well as managers can they really do anything about this? So uh, the way I like to kind of reframe that um, amidst tremendous challenge, um, which is, is maybe a, the pandemic, maybe a topic for another time. But the key here is uh, what, what I advocate is the more restaurants can seek to empower workers is actually good business for them as well, right? The, the more you reduce turnover, for instance, the more you empower workers to take ownership over being there rather than seeing this as a part-time job while you're really trying to do something else. 
Um, th this is that kind of uh, um, you know, liminal relationship with workers themselves not really seeing uh, their identity, their work identity as a restaurant worker, as a restaurant professional. The more you can actually empower workers uh, to take that on is ultimately good business. It's good, it, it builds customer relations. It uh, um, can do a, a number of things that are really productive. Uh, I would also add one more thing, which is that we are also in a time that, um, you know, in my mind, uh, there's sort of dual prongs going on right now. One, of course, being the pandemic affecting the industry. The second is the rise of these uh, of social movements such as Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement of, um, that was a, a few years back and is still ongoing today. Uh, what we're seeing here is that uh, more of the American uh, population um, is taking interest in in um, in these in these social movements, and I I believe um, that they are wanting to see a bit more of that messaging coming from what they consume, right? Where they where they put their dollars? Uh, do it? Would they rather you know spend money and spend time in establishments that um, are are showing advocacy, uh, true advocacy to better their communities? or for a, a larger, a little bit more nondescript uh, kind of corporate entity, not made those kinds of overtures. Um, so customers too have, have a very distinct option. And I would say that um, again, in this context of, of the moment we are in related to social movements, um, a very powerful thing for restaurateurs to understand is, is the more they can get on board with that, so to speak, not in a corny way, but, but in a more authentic way, I think that's also good business. That's a way forward for the industry. Eli Rebelliano Wilson, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Hopefully by now you've heard us talk about our groundwater war investigation. It's more than a year-long project we've done looking into PFAS contamination at a handful of military installations in New Mexico. Most notably, we have focused on Holloman and Cannon Air Force bases, where there have been just uh, extreme levels of these chemicals, which are used in firefighting foams, found in the groundwater in Clovis near Cannon. They have even found it in some of the city's public water wells, which have now been shut down. And there is work underway, as we reported, to get a full scope of uh, the spread and the amount of the plume of these PFAS chemicals. And we are dedicated to continuing to cover this. Going to have some great stuff uh, coming up in future weeks, including a former Canon firefighter who will talk about his experiences. But right now, we want to bring you a conversation our correspondent Laura Paskus had with other reporters across the country who are covering the PFAS issue. We wanted to find out if all of their situations were tied to military uh, activity, and it turns out that is not the case. We have mentioned this many times, but... PFAS chemicals are in a lot of things, from pizza boxes to dental floss to microwave popcorn bags. So we are all being exposed to these chemicals, which don't break down in our body or in the water and have serious health risks associated with them. We also wanted to talk about how the military was approaching this in other states to see how it compared to here in New Mexico, where we had to take legal action in some cases to try to compel the military to get a handle on this situation. So great conversation here. And uh, again, we only had time for a short amount of it in the show this week on air, but we want to bring it to you in full here, and we hope you enjoy it and learn a ton. 
Michael, Garrett, thanks for joining me on New Mexico in Focus. I'm really glad to have you two here today to talk about PFAS. Michael, I'd like to start with you and your coverage in New Jersey. First of all, welcome back to New Mexico PBS. We miss you here in New Mexico. Um, New Jersey is a state that's well known for manufacturing. But when it comes to the PFAS contamination, are we talking about manufacturing? Are we talking about the military? Kind of what's the, the big issue in New Jersey? So in New Jersey, um, in New Jersey, we get it uh, from everywhere. Uh, you're right. Uh, we, we're an industrial state. We've got a big legacy of uh, chemical manufacturing here. And that's where a large uh, source of the contamination around uh, us is uh, coming from. We do have um, our fair share of, of military bases, uh, the largest of which is the Joint Base uh, down in the Pine Barrens. Um, and that actually has, according to the Environmental Working Group, uh, one of the highest known um, levels of, of PFAS uh, that the DOD has found in their kind of initial round of testing. Um, so that's a significant source. But I think if you're looking at the picture holistically, uh, pollution from uh, chemical companies and chemical plants has been the state's primary concern. And what are the different tactics that the state has taken in trying to either compel cleanup, stop pollution from the manufacturing side, from the military side? In New Jersey, um, especially as the state has gotten more serious about the issue, the primary tactic has been uh, lawsuits. And I, that really started under our uh, previous um, commissioner for the uh, State Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, her name is Catherine McCabe, and she was a veteran of the DOJ's um, environmental uh, wing. Um, and so she kind of, she took a, she directed the state in conjunction with the attorney general um, to really rely on the courts in, in bringing um, pressure down on companies to compel a lot, uh, cleanup. It's a slow moving process. A lot of these cleanups uh, have not begun yet, um, and the, the court cases are still playing out. And I believe it was earlier this year, like maybe around January, you were covering the state's lawsuit with the Defense Department. What's the, what's the strategy there, and, and where does that lawsuit stand right now? I think uh, with that particular lawsuit, Laura, I think you will um, be able to relate to it uh, with New Mexico's experience. Um, the, the state sued the Department of Defense for contamination, particularly focused on uh, Joint Base McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst, um, but also with concerns related to uh, Naval Weapons Station Earl and um, the former Naval Air Warfare Center in Trenton, which is now closed. Um, in all three cases, the state, state regulators have just become uh, frustrated by a lack of action uh, from the Department of Defense, particularly as New Jersey has moved forward with setting statewide drinking water standards for PFAS. Um, and they, cho they chose to file the lawsuit out of that frustration. Um, like most lawsuits um, related to the topic, it got sent to federal court in South Carolina, and that's where it sits today. So Garrett, Michigan has been dealing with PFAS contamination issue for a lot longer than New Mexico has. I'm curious, 
the state has taken some interesting steps from, from my mind watching from a distance. Can you talk a little bit about how the state of Michigan has tried to tackle the problem with respect to the military contamination? Sure. Um, you know, actually the, the state of Michigan uh, looked to New Jersey quite a bit uh, early on about uh, four or five years ago when they were starting to um, develop some of its uh, state drinking water standards. So in, in regards to the military, the, the state of Michigan has not taken the step of taking them to court. It's mostly been uh, sort of administrative uh, disputes over, um, you know, state criteria um, and, uh, you know, the, the way that that's being enforced. Um, in Michigan, there is a significant amount of uh, military uh, contamination. Uh, the 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 most significant uh, and most high profile of those is the Wordsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda. Um, but there are issues at, say, Selfridge Air National Guard uh, Base near uh, on Lake St. Clair. Um, there's a uh, K.I. Sawyer, uh, a former Air Force Base up in the UP. Um, and, you know, but those the, the military piece uh, is only a smaller fraction of the overall contamination picture in Michigan, which tends to largely be centered on sort of a commercial industrial type of contamination. So, so if your viewers have ever heard of the, the Wolverine worldwide uh, issue in the, the Kent County area near Grand Rapids, uh, it's a, a, a footwear manufacturer, um, hush puppy shoes, Merrill sandals, that sort of thing. And that that's the most severe example of the contamination in Michigan. It's a, 25 square mile contaminated area, uh, incredibly high levels in, in, in drinking water wells and, 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 you know, rivers that are affected. And, you know, it's a pretty big deal. Um, but the state's been dealing with a SCOTA and Wordsmith Air Force Base the longest. And it's really where the, the first place where they discovered the chemicals uh, back in 2010. Um, and so it's been a lot of push and pull with the Air Force, you know, trying to get them to adhere to state standards after they were developed, trying to get them to do more with, uh, you know, respect to cleanup. And it's just a really long, slow process. It gets dragged out. It's uh, the Air Force follows this uh, Superfund process known as CERCLA. And they, they love to say that. They love to say the acronym CERCLA and the CERCLA process. In fact, it's something of a drinking game, you know, uh, among uh, journalists who uh, cover that. Um, so it's just a it's an, it's an ongoing thing. The uh, Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, is right now and just recently, you know, as of this spring, invoked a, a defense uh, a provision in, in a recent defense authorization bill that in an attempt to force a new agreement with the, the Department of Defense and, 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 and trying to you know, hasten things and, and get things uh, sort of moving more, more quickly and, and get the Air Force to uh, adhere to the state's uh, groundwater standards and you know, treatment water discharge standards and all these little small things that the Air Force pushes back on. And they pretty much push back on just about everything. So in terms of the military picture, it's, it's a, you know, it's not quite the same as New Jersey, uh, hasn't really run through the courts as much, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue that the state regulators just, you know, are, are highly, highly frustrated with. Yeah, so here in New Mexico, you know, the, the, the push really has been, we need EPA to set federal 
regulations. There needs to be a federal standard and then the state can hold the military accountable. What about these um, individual state drinking water standards? How have those played out and, and are they enforceable? Um, let's start with New Jersey. Sure. So we actually have three drinking water standards in place in New Jersey. Um, the first one uh, was put in place in 2018 uh, for PFNA, uh, which as far as PFAS goes is, is one of the lesser known or talked about ones. Um, and that's because in South Jersey, um, around a chemical plant run by the company Solvay, um, in around 2013, we found really severe uh, PFNA contamination in municipal drinking water. Uh, there was a bit of a crisis. There was bottled water handouts. Um, and in response to that, um, the state developed drinking water standards, PFNA. Those were put in place in 2018. Um, it was followed in 2020 by standards for PFOA and PFOS, which are much more common. Um, and the way it works in New Jersey is uh, the violation, well, the levels in a municipal system are assessed on a quarterly basis, and it's kind of like uh, averages for the previous year. Uh, so you needed to wait a year for enforcement to kick in. Uh, and now we're at that point where the state is uh, starting to hand out violations to drinking water systems that are over the limit. Um, and we're seeing that. Uh, that's a bit of um, reporting that I'm checking in on right now. Um, but I know that uh, there's at least uh, five community water systems in the state that have uh, PFOS uh, violations on the books uh, and will need to address that situation. So that raises another really big question um, that no one at this point has an answer to, which is, um, you know, treating PFAS uh, in water systems is a really, it takes really expensive equipment um, that up to this point, water systems have not needed. Uh, so who's going to pay for that you know, equipment and who's going to pay for the ultimate remediation of the mess? That's all uh, to be determined. What about Michigan, Garrett? Um, so in Michigan, uh, in, in 2018, the state took the step of uh, deciding it would test all of the drinking water, the public drinking water supplies in Michigan. Um, and that was initiated following the Wolverine Worldwide contamination. It put a pretty, pretty big spotlight on Michigan's governor, Republican governor at the time, Rick Snyder, who you may have heard of related to the Flint water crisis. Uh, so he was looking to, um, so not... <laughs> To, to not get involved in another uh, drinking water issue where it looked like uh, the state government was, uh, you know, asleep at the wheel. Um, so they started testing all the drinking water supplies around Michigan and they found some, oh, I think it was ended up being about 1.5 to 1.9 million people were being served by a, uh, a municipal supply or a public supply that had at least trace levels of, of the chemicals. And so, they initiate, uh, they started doing some toxicology reviews um, uh, of, of the literature around, um, you know, PFAS contamination and its uh, impact on people's uh, health. And in, in 2018, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitner, Whitmer was um, elected. And, and one of the first things she did uh, in the spring of 2019 was initiate the uh, promulgation of state-specific drinking water standards that which are enforceable, um, and so it took a you know a better part of a year and a half or so there to get through that process. Uh, it's a complicated process, 
Um, you know, even at the state level, at the federal level, it takes several years and is incredibly, you know, even more complicated, but the state process, it can move a little more quickly. Um, and so in uh, August 2020, in sort of the midst of the pandemic summer, um, they, those, those standards were passed, uh, uh, the state legislature, which uh, declined to act to stop them. There's a joint committee that gets a look at that stuff. And uh, then they took effect. And so, you know, the state has uh, seven chemicals, which it, uh, PFAS chemicals, which it regulates in drinking water. Uh, and the lowest, I believe, is I think um, uh, PFNA, uh, which is I think at six parts per trillion. Um, PFOA is uh, eight. Uh, PFOS is 16, you know. So it's, it's similar to some of the other state drinking water standards uh, around the country. Um, but certainly not the most uh, strict, I believe. Maybe PFNA uh, is nationally, but uh, they've, you know, the state is moving through the administrative process now with the utilities. Uh, those are enforceable standards, um, and there's uh, quarterly sampling that's done at drinking water systems around the state. Um, there's you know, those, some of those systems are probably going to have to be installing treatment measures like activated carbon or, or um, uh, reverse osmosis, which, you know, I think for, for at a public utility scale, it's more most likely to go with the granular activated carbon. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that was sort of, you know, moving along in, in, in sort of a typical regulatory fashion in some cases until actually this summer when uh, or this spring when 3M uh, filed a lawsuit to try and invalidate those standards. And so that's sort of where things are at with them. They were, uh, you know, it's, they haven't been struck down or anything uh, by a judge, uh, but they are being challenged. The state standards that you're talking about seem much smaller, much more strict than the EPA's recommended health advisory, which is 70 parts per billion. You're talking much lower numbers and much lower exposures. Um, Garrett, you've done some really great reporting um, recently in the past couple of months around the, um, what is it, the Wordsmith Air Force Base. And that PFAS contamination, unlike here in New Mexico, where the, the contamination is largely contained, but not entirely contained to the these large Air Force bases themselves. Um, but with Wordsmith, that's not the case. And I'd just like to highlight a paragraph in one of your recent stories about the town of Oscata, Michigan. And you wrote, the PFAS problem has become an economic and social burden from which there appears to be no end in sight. Hotel owners say it drives cancellations. Realtors say it tanks housing deals. Residents worry about how it may impact their property values. Elected officials call it a time suck that's raising utility and infrastructure costs. And few, if any, are satisfied with the pace at which the Air Force is cleaning up the problem. What has the military done at this point? Well, so the military has done some things in Oscoda. Um, the, the problem, you know, in Oscoda dates back before most people really knew about, much about PFAS in Michigan or, or, or elsewhere. Um, and so in 2014, I think the first granular activated carbon uh, groundwater extraction treatment system was in, at a military site anywhere, it was actually installed at Wordsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda. Um, and that's been, that's installed at the fire training site where they just used 
you know, liberal amounts of uh, uh, AFFF firefighting foam uh, to train with. And it's right next to a, a marshland, which is part of the, uh, the Asavo River, um, you know, complex and which dumps into Lake Huron. And so, you know, there's been some, there's been work happening around this issue since 2014, but it, it's not very, it's not a lot. Uh, it's sort of a, a drop in the bucket uh, to, to the overall size of the issue. Um, and so, you know, it's been a sort of a slow push and pull to get the Air Force to do more over time. And so the, because the Air Force uh, uses 70 parts per trillion, which you just mentioned, the EPA's health advisory level as their action level, not the state drinking water standards, uh, they've only hooked up like one or two homes to municipal drinking water. Um, whereas if those standards, if they were dealing with uh, uh, standards that were far lower, the, the state standards, those hookups would be, you know, the Air Force would be on the hook for many more of them. Uh, it's been a, a largely dealt with as a natural resources issue um, to some degree versus a public health issue uh, at, at Wordsmith. And that's, you know, a bit of a, you know, a topic of debate uh, among, you know, the various folks who exist in the Escota community, uh, in the state regulatory community, even at the federal level. It's, you know, how big is the, th the, the threat here? Um, when it, it, the, there's a lot of people on private wells uh, around Escota, but it's sort of a smaller Northern Michigan rural community. So it's not like it's densely populated, lots of people in one place drinking from a highly contaminated aquifer. These people are spread out. Some of them are drinking, many of them are drinking contaminated groundwater, but it's somewhere under 70 parts per trillion and this Air Force isn't gonna you know, really do anything for that. And so what they are being forced to deal with is the natural resources, the contaminated marsh where some of the uh, most highly contaminated fish ever found anywhere in the world are found right next to the Air Force Base. Um, you know, a, a lake that's uh, very popular with fishing and boating, and it's just it, this foam. Uh, this it's almost like reconstituted AFFF. It just forms on the shoreline, and you go there, and it's 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 obvious, and it's you know it's this piles of foam that sometimes blow inland when it's a windy day, and um, you know, that's, those are the sorts of things that people in Oscoda are, are, you know, upset about. And, and this is a Northern Michigan hunting fishing community. It's, it sort of lives and dies on the tourism dollars that, you know, people bring to it every summer. And so, you know, it, you have a contamination issue, there's automatically a stigma issue associated with that. And so you get, you know, various points of views from people who live in that community. Some people are very up in arms about it and want something done and want to shout from the rooftops. And other people are like, well, you know, let's, let's just deal with this internally here and locally and not, you know, uh, get people skittish and, you know, who decide to vacation elsewhere. Um, you know, so it's a, you know, th that paragraph you read is, is, you know, my best attempt to sort of summarize the way that that, you know, issue is being, you know, is, is manifesting itself uh, in Oscoda. It's just, it, it kind of pervades everything and becomes just a, a you know, adds a struggle uh, element, you know, that really wouldn't otherwise be there. Right. What about in New Jersey? What action has the military taken either toward cleanup or um, providing drinking water to people or filtration systems to people whose water has been contaminated? 
I <laughs> honestly, Laura, I'm not sure I could fully answer that question because uh, I've been so focused on um, the chemical company side of things. Um, my best answer to that is that the state feels that the military has not done enough. Right. So what about people whose drinking water has been contaminated by manufacturers? Who pays for their sort of mitigation of their water? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think that the best example comes from um, South Jersey, the Gloucester County area, uh, which is where the Solvay plant that has been the, the center of so many um, of so much trouble um, is located. Uh, that was where they found the high levels of PFNA back around 2013. Um, at that point in time, Solvay, uh, who has never taken responsibility as being the source of the contamination, um, did pay uh, to hand out bottled water um, as wells were tested. Um, many municipal wells that were found to have particularly high levels were taken offline. So it's a strain on those municipal systems to figure out where they're going to get water from instead. Um, Beyond that, um, the systems have been, have had to install kind of uh, filters either at the wells or in their treatment plants. Um, there's a lot of homeowners down there with private wells, so they need uh, filters for their homes when the water comes in. Um, the state has helped paid for some of those. Um, and I, I would need to double check, but I believe Solvay has also helped pay for some of those as well. And so, the, the, the water situation down there is, uh, for the most part, better, right? Like the contamination is there, but the water is drinkable because the filters have in recent years been installed. Um, that's not across the board. One of the towns um, in the affected area is a, is a local, is a town called National Park. Um, and they recently were issued a violation uh, from state regulators for having PFNA uh, over the state limit in their drinking water. So they still have work to do um, to figure out the issue. Um, but that is, is generally uh, in places uh, where the contamination has been found. It really falls on the local water system, whether it be municipally owned or a private company, whatever it may be, um, to handle it themselves. Um, to, the, to that extent, even a couple weeks ago, or I should say earlier in June, uh, a handful of municipalities in New Jersey, led by the city of Camden, uh, sued uh, 3M, DuPont, and other chemical companies um, basically to recoup costs um, for drinking water contamination. Uh, that's a very new lawsuit, uh, and it is, like so many others, in uh, federal court in South Carolina. It just seems to me, listening to what both of you are talking about and, and knowing the situation here in New Mexico, that the, such a huge burden is placed on the state, um, whether it's to try to compel cleanup or perform studies or figure out ways to get clean water into people's homes and, um, you know, kind of, it, it's extraordinary to think about the amount of taxpayer money, whether federal or state that goes into um, polluting the water in the first place and then trying to figure out how to clean it up. Um, one of the things that happened here in the state recently was the, the state of New Mexico and the USGS started doing um, studies statewide sampling um, with, from within our major rivers and groundwater. And 
and found low levels of PFAS are pretty widespread in the state's waters. And Garrett, you recently covered um, PFAS in rainwater around the Great Lakes region. Is this a significant public health threat? Like what do these studies tell us about what's happening? Uh, well, so the the, the rain uh, study is sort of, uh, it's not peer reviewed yet. It's, it's pending that sort of thing, but it's uh, done by a very credible research group that's uh, funded jointly by the uh, EPA and the uh, government of Canada. Uh, it's uh, the, an atmospheric deposition monitoring network uh, in the Great Lakes. And um, they, what they found is uh, surprisingly high levels of uh, the contaminants at various sites around the Great Lakes. Uh, so they tested in Chicago, uh, Cleveland. Uh, those were two urban sites uh, where they found, you know, I think the, the data point they shared with me was a thousand parts per trillion in a, a, over two weeks. So two weeks worth of rainwater added up to a thousand parts per trillion in concentration, um, you know, in Cleveland. And, you know, with similar sort of similarly high concentrations, uh, I understand in Chicago. Um, and then other, you know, finding concentrations in remote areas as well. So there, there's a, a national lakeshore on the northwest uh, uh, corner of Michigan called Sleeping Bear Dunes. It's a very popular, beautiful area. Uh, they found, you know, surprisingly high concentrations in the, you know, hundred, a uh, couple hundred parts per trillion in, in say, at Sleeping Bear Dunes. And it's, this is, there's no smokestacks around Sleeping Bear Dunes, right? And so it's got to come from somewhere. Um, and so in terms of the public health threat, it, I guess, the, the researchers, you know, I talked to say, you know, this isn't going to make someone, you know, non-stick or, right, you know, by being out in this rain. Um, but what it does is it, it just spreads this stuff everywhere. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know, if it's falling in the rain, then it's falling on, you know, cropland, it's falling on land that's used, you know, and filtering into groundwater that's used for drinking water supplies, it's falling on the Great Lakes themselves, which are, you know, an, an enormous source of drinking water for, you know, I think 40 million people in, in the Midwest and in, in Canada, um, you know, and, and so it, it could go a long way to explaining a lot of sort of small lower detections that don't really aren't can't be traced to a source uh but show up in various investigations um you know where you know just sort of stumps the regulators that you know who want to try and sort of find a, a source for it but they can't and but the, they're also you know the data shows that it's there um you know i I've, as, a, as someone who works in the Great Lakes uh, region and covers the Great Lakes, we've always, you know, uh, we're, we're highly aware that like other states out West, you know, look at that, these bodies of fresh water and think, gosh, that would be nice to have, especially in the middle of a, of a drought and a, you know, a extreme heat situation. Um, you know, I'm actually in the middle of working on a story right now that, you know, analyzes data from the state of Michigan's uh, uh, regular sampling of Great Lakes based drinking water systems. And the, the conclusion is going to be that uh, low occurrence, low detections are common in, you know, systems that draw from the Great Lakes. And it can be, you know, it can change. It can be two parts per trillion one month and 10 parts per trillion the next month. It sort of depends on you know, their proximity to the river mouths and tributaries that bring the stuff uh, to the Great Lakes from inland. So the lakes themselves are not 
pristine sources of drinking water by any stretch. They're going to probably at some point, those systems, you know, may need to start looking at filtration. You know, I mean, we're talking about systems like the city of Grand Rapids, where, you know, I've drank that water for years and years. Um, so, you know, it's, it's undetermined, I think, in terms of what the, you know, something like the PFAS and rain, you know, what the overall public health threat is, but it's definitely fair to say that it's, you know, it adds to the accumulation of these chemicals in the environment and helps spread them around in ways that make it really difficult to remediate. Right. So here in New Mexico, PFAS has not garnered a lot of attention or um, local media coverage. And I'm curious in New Jersey and Michigan, what has public response and interest been in, in PFAS coverage? Uh, well, speaking for New Jersey, I'd say um, you get a pretty big response of concern uh, from the immediate community where wherever the given test is found or the given contamination uh, is found. I'm not sure that the issue has permeated uh, and grabbed the attention of the state's population at large. Um, but for folks that show up one day with a violation notice on their door or a note in their annual consumer confidence report from their water system, it raises a lot of questions, you know, and, and, and folks that look into it, it's not hard for people to figure out the health risks that are associated with PFAS. And once, you know, once they learn about that, people keep, people care a lot. How about Michigan? Well, you know, I think we're uh, one of the states that's got more people who are paying attention to it, um, you know, just sort of uh, by virtue of the fact that we have investigated this stuff pretty heavily over the last few years. I think across the state of Michigan, we're at something like 170 sites where there's known contamination above a certain, you know, level. They're sort of on the state's radar. And that doesn't even include the drinking water systems and, you know, various other investigations that are going on. So, you know, and as well as, you know, the, the there's been a lot of reporting on it in, in you know, the last few years. And, and the and I'm very proud of the work that I've done and we've done at MLive to uh, try and, um, you know, raise the awareness and, and try and get this stuff out there. Um, and it's been picked up and, and, and carried forward by other media outlets, uh, big and small, um, you know, and, and it's, it's had impacts in, in ways you know, the, the awareness, you know, has done led to things like high school students um, up in northern Michigan in a place called Pelston. Um, they decided to, you know, be proactive and start testing their own, you know, local drinking water sources uh, before the state was able to get around to it. And, and then they, they found the chemicals, you know, and it, you know. Uh, concerningly high levels, and, and that got the attention of state authorities, and, you know, now that's being sort of addressed, and and so that's, you know, sort of the out, you know, one of the uh, more positive uh, impacts of a populace that's a bit more educated about it. Um, in Michigan, we've, we went through the Flint drinking water crisis uh, several years ago, and, and, and that really heightened people's uh, awareness around drinking water specifically, but also environmental issues. Um, given that we're positioned in the middle of the Great Lakes, you know, people tend to be very emotional around water and very, uh, you know, uh, just pay a lot more attention to environmental issues uh, to some degree than, than I assume other states do. But all that being said, I still, 
you know, talk to people on a regular basis, you know, friends of mine, uh, family members from around the state and elsewhere. And, and, you know, I bring it up and, you know, they're like, PFAS, uh, I've never heard of that, you know, and then you get to explain to them this thing. And then, <laughs> you know, that's how, you know, you have that conversation. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hit or miss, you know, I think, uh, place by place in Michigan, but overall, I think we have a, a pretty, our state's population is pretty, pretty keen to it at this point. So I have that conversation with, with more people than probably want to have that conversation with me about PFAS. And I'm curious, what have you each learned about PFAS that you kind of wish you just never knew? Um, in New Jersey, the State Department of Environmental Protection um, officials have said early and often um, that where you look for PFAS, you find it. Uh, and that has held true um, in, the, in the few years that I've been reporting on this now. Um, I think uh, recently I did some reporting on, on research done by state and federal scientists of uh, new chemicals within the PFAS family that um, Solvay has been using in replacement of PFNA as supposed to be the safer alternative. Um, these chemicals have been found to be um, to have their own health questions, um, and they've also been found to be uh, pretty airborne. Um, and so, <laughs> it's been it's remarkable when you read a study that ties um, pollution as far away as New Hampshire to this chemical plant in South Jersey, um, and just the pervasiveness. Um, of these chemicals in the world around us. I mean, never mind the fact that they are in the majority of things in our household, you know, um, but just just the sheer where how they end up in the environment and to the extent to which um, it, it's something it's hard to shake. Garrett, what do you wish you never knew? You know, very similar to, you know, what Michael just outlined, just the, the pervasiveness of it, you know, and, and, and when you learn that, you start to inevitably question, you know, your own exposures to it uh, over time, right? And so I, you know, uh, in college, I, I spent a lot of time uh, delivering pizzas, working in a pizza place, and pizza boxes are you know, sort of one of these well-known uh, uh that's a food contact uh, product that uh, you're coated with PFAS. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming I've ingested a lot of it. Um, I've been on various drinking water supplies, which have later been found to have, you know, levels of it, not, not really high levels, but nonetheless, you know, they're there. Um, you know, so you start to think about that and you start to think about the way that, you know, effects could affect you and could affect your loved ones and stuff. And it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to, to wrap your mind around it right and that's just you know and then you start to think you know there are some people who have been exposed to this stuff at just godly high amounts and in you know you, you really feel for those people um they've lost they've lost people you know they deal with chronic health problems now and it, you know it's it's just it's just a rough thing uh to you know deal with reporting on this over you know the last few years you know i've seen affected people residents you know who found high levels of it in their water who you know realized you know that their son who was very young was drinking really high levels of this stuff and it's a you go to they appear to be going through a grieving process right to to learn you know to come to 
to grips with that sort of thing. And so, you know, it's just the, the idea that it, uh, that it's everywhere that we just kind of recently figured out that these things are out there and it's, it's, that's been the, the troubling aspect of it for me. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for your standout reporting on this. That, that serves not just your local communities, but for someone reading from another state is just really great reporting. So thank you for that. And thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. I appreciate, uh, you know, you're doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation, Laura. It's always a uh, pleasure to hear from New Mexico PBS. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. As always, we encourage you to keep up with us on social media throughout the week. You can do that on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. We are in all those places and always love to hear from you. Uh, Suggest ideas for upcoming shows. We love that as well. Offer your thoughts on something we've talked about in one of our recent episodes. It's all welcome here. And we are hard, hard at work already on this week's show And we'll bring you all the great highlights uh, coming up in our next episodes. Until then, as always, we encourage you to stay safe, stay healthy.